Dr. Moji, thank you so much for just enlightening us. I want to go on to this global COVID pandemic. It has indeed been global. We felt it in the in the US, you felt it in the UK, and studies have suggested that whether you have been diagnosed with a mental health condition or not before the pandemic, many people have struggled with their mental well-being. How are people dealing with this in general with respect to their mental health in your part of the world, in Manchester, United Kingdom? Oh, Dr. Sagadi, I mean, the pandemic has thrown up a lot of things. It's interesting for one to be alive to experience a pandemic because, as you may know, it occurs probably one in every hundred years. So it has really thrown up a lot of issues that's impacted on women, on men, on children, on the society. Because, number one, I think there's been a period of collective trauma that we've all experienced in this pandemic. And that is when you think in terms of the fear that is generated in people regarding people's mortality. Even before that, anxieties about whether they're going to lose their job, anxieties about whether friends or family would die, anxieties of not knowing what would happen. Is it going to be an apocalypse? In the Manchester, they set up a sort of a Nightingale Hospital set aside for 3,000 people. And personally, that did generate fear in me because I'm thinking, which people are they going to feel in this Nightingale 3,000 bedded emergency hospital that they put up? So it did generate a lot of anxiety in people. And studies have shown, indeed, that, yes, there's been an increase in the level of anxiety throughout the community. Manchester, certainly in your side of the world as well, anywhere, everywhere in the United Kingdom, all over the world. So there's been increase in the level of anxieties, increase in the level of depression, and just not knowing. But an interesting thing, though, is the fact that A recent study that was published in The Lancet showed that there's been incidents of suicide has been static and it's even reduced in some places. But I think we'll come to that at some point when you allow me to discuss that in particular. But yes, indeed, there's been a lot of these sort of emotional turmoil for people. So in the UK, the way the National Health Services run is such that the GPs, as I said, are gatekeepers. Because of the pandemic, you couldn't go to your GP surgery. That is your, like your family physician, your general practitioner. Yes, because you know there's lockdown, stay away, stay at home. So people were staying at home, they're not going to the GPs. And a lot of people who have chronic conditions, they are staying at home, they're not going to the GPs, they're not going to the hospital, not even to A&E. Accidents, uh, the emergency. Accidents and emergency. That wasn't happening. And I mean, some people were trying to cope by using substances, you know, alcohol, street drugs, all that was coming up. So it was very never seen sort of situation. Having said that, the incidence of patients who presented with things like myocardial infarction in A&E dropped. Incidences of people presenting with cancer symptoms or even being referred by their GPs to the secondary care system also dropped. And at the moment, the NHS has a waiting list of up to 4 million people. The attention that was paid to manage the pandemic, the patients who sadly had the COVID symptoms and had to be 
admitted into hospitals. Of course, they filled the regular hospital beds and different specialties within the hospital. They had to change, you know, they stopped all routine surgeries. They are now seeing COVID patients and even clinicians who have not worked in ICU in the past. They had to come up and deploy them to these sorts of specialties. Medical students who were meant to be graduating, they were also deployed to look after COVID patients in, in the hospitals. So it's been a very different way of life completely that has happened. But having said that, I think the pandemic has also thrown up a lot of positives. Although I know that all the steps taken to manage the pandemic will be reviewed formally, will be investigated once the pandemic is over. You know, there'll be a post-mortem of it, thankfully, so that we can learn lessons from it. But some of the positives that's come out is shown the um, resilience, you know, the human spirit, because people have become more supportive of one another. You had people dropping off foods in neighbours at their doorsteps. Some people have lost their jobs. They've sort of transited into other job forms where they were taking deliveries. There's a particular story of a pilot who lost his job as a pilot and he became a delivery man for a supermarket. So they were dropping foods off in people's homes. The food banks, they were quite rife. They were there available, packing foods, charity bodies, and just delivering it to people, especially those who are vulnerable, the elderly and the community. So it's brought up a lot of goodness in the community. And during the pandemic, at the height of it, every Thursday, people were encouraged to come out because we're meant to be locked in into your homes. They come onto the streets and they clap for the NHS and the staff. Because remember, the impact on the NHS staff is another, is a complete story that can take us another, you know, long period if we were to go on to it. So the NHS is the National Health Service. Service, yes, yes, the members of staff. Because remember, they are still having to go to work. And some of the staff became riddled with anxiety. Some, they had some real anxiety attacks, thinking that they're going to work, but they're going to bring COVID back to their home, to their children, to contaminate their family. So you can imagine that going to work and thinking, oh, you know, as I'm going, I'm coming back, am I going to be bringing the virus to the family? And some families, they had to live separately away for some time to prevent that so that the NHS staff within the family was literally isolating while they were working at the height of the pandemic. Another good thing that the pandemic threw up, I think, is that people have now become IT savvy. We've literally gone for what we can have. We're now connecting virtually. They're making extra efforts to learn, to go on social media. It is amazing finding out, knowing so many communities online now that's been lifelines for people because they had no one to connect to. I remember isolation can generate sadness, depression, lunacy. You know, you can just lose it completely. So this has helped people to find outlets for these periods of isolation. And these are some of the positive things. Well, I mean, of course, you know, there are the TV programs, the regular TV programs and online resources for people.
Is there a downside of maybe an increased incidence of obesity because people have just sat at home and have not been able to exercise and so maybe obesity has been on the rise? And you did talk about some substance abuse like alcohol being used as one of the coping mechanisms. Yeah, Dr. Sagadi, you're very right because people use alcohol or drugs which are available even though in lockdown when probably these dealers are supposed to be locked down but somehow people still had access to it. But then, remember, the supermarkets were open and you could buy alcohol. So, you know, these were the poor coping mechanisms that people went for. And, yeah, people were sat at home, some of them eating too much. A key negative thing that it threw up is the high incidence of domestic violence during the pandemic because people were stuck together within a confined space of their home. They can't even go into the garden. They had advised just stay at home. So relationships that weren't healthy, that weren't well-balanced or supportive, that threw up a lot of things for a lot of people. And there were heightened reports of domestic violence in this, in, during the pandemic. Yeah. Having said that, on the converse, we do read of relationships that have thrived because of the lockdown, because people are now having to spend more time together as families, you know, so they learned to tolerate each other more, to learn about one another, and just to enjoy being together. I think it's a good thing. So it's been, you know, both good and bad in that sense. Another negative I can recall is the fact that, you know, when there's domestic violence or when there is child abuse signs or symptoms, we rely on people on the outside, maybe school teachers, the school, to pick up these signs in our children, in our young children, who have been victims of child abuse of some sort. But because the schools were closed for a very long, protracted, or usually protracted period of time, this was another downside. You are bringing up so many topics. And you know, you are like the fourth mental health specialist we've had on this show. You're bringing up a lot of things, you know, that even just the way you did the pros and cons, because people talked about the increased domestic violence, but didn't necessarily talk about the relationships in which people had to learn to tolerate each other. And like, okay, we're stuck, we're not going anywhere. So this is good. So thank you. I'm going to go on to the next part. In fact, there's another positive of the pandemic, which is people were getting pets. Wow. People who are on their own, they now got cats, they got dogs and so on. And there's now a risk that now that we're coming out of isolation, they're going to be getting rid of their four-legged friends. But that's another (laughs) aspect though. But you would think that they got the pets to love the pets. Well, it was a need space, isn't it? They had a need, they fulfilled the need. If the need is no longer there, maybe they're going to play with their friends and they're not that responsible because now they're not stuck with it. Mm. And some of them, they'll let them go. They didn't get it because of love. They got wow. it because they're feeling lonely. Wow. And there was nothing else. They can't go out to the pub to drink. To do, they can't go to their nightclub. So mm. that's what they did. Well, let's hope the pets are taken care of. Dr. Moji Arulefela, as a British songwriter, Seal stated in his A Kiss from a Rose song, what is your power, your pleasure, and your pain? As you look at what you do now, what advice would you give a younger you looking at a similar career pathway? Oh, wow. Well, my motivation 
in being a psychiatrist really is the fact that I see it as my vocation, it's my purpose, I feel in my element when I am with my patient and working with them, supporting them and trying to work out ways of treating them optimally. I mean, I wanted to be a doctor since the age of seven. So for me, being with my patient is just so rewarding, it's so fulfilling. And to be able to make a difference in people's lives, for me, that is my motivation. And another beautiful thing about being a psychiatrist is I do take a holistic approach in managing my patients. I see them as a person, manage them as a person. By the time I have the first meeting with them and spend the first hour, I mean, in what other medical specialty do you get to see a patient for an hour and then they just tell you so much? And after that, you know so much about them. So it's a privilege to be able to do that. And that does motivate me because then we can synthesize all the information I've got into a care plan, a management plan, and then treat them accordingly. So that does motivate me. The fact that it makes a difference. I mean, if someone is quite depressed to the point of being maybe suicidal, to be able to contribute in a way to make them pull back from that edge, it is satisfying. Because remember, one in four of us, in fact, I think the latest statistic says one in two of us, us of the population would have mental health issues, one in two. So it's that common. So it does affect humanity, a raft of humanity. So that does give me motivation. It gives me pleasure to be able to do that. The pain in it, you know, in psychiatry, we try to strive to prevent suicide. Because suicide is a painful part of it. When your patient commits suicide, it just hits you in a way that's difficult to describe to the point that as an individual, one would need debriefing themselves to help them because there'll be lots of questions in your mind. What didn't I do? What did I do? What did I miss? How did it happen on my watch? So that can get the clinician to question themselves, question their competency and their ability to be able to carry on, depending on what context that the suicide or the homicide or the infanticide has happened. So those are the painful parts of psychiatry. And I do know that there are programs in the UK that's been, you know, the campaigns such as the Zero Seaside program, for instance, that try to buffer up whatever resources in the system to prevent suicide from happening. But we know that sometimes, even in spite of the best efforts, so those are my pains in my work life. With regards to advising a younger me looking at a similar career path, I think I'll just call the younger me and say, keep an open mind because flexibility is a companion of opportunity. And I'm saying that because I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't want to be a psychiatrist. But here I am now. I'm in psychiatry and I find it very fulfilling and I would do it again. But if I hadn't been flexible in my approach of putting myself in a position to be able to take this path of my career, then I wouldn't experience this sense of fulfillment that I have in my day-to-day work. I'll also tell my younger me to keep learning and to share what they learn. And the third thing, I'll tell them, do things that give you pleasure because you have to look after number one as well. 
So you need a healthy work-life balance. Wow, Dr. Moji, you talk with so much authority on this field. You, of course, I mean, you're a consultant psychiatrist, but you talk with authority, you talk with passion, power, and I mean, thank you. So for any young listeners out there thinking of a field of psychiatry, Dr. Moji Arulefela, a consultant psychiatrist in Manchester in the United Kingdom, is giving very important advice. And again, this is Coco Pods, the podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation, where we talk about all the issues with women's health and trying to reduce incidents of women being very sick around pregnancy or delivery, which is morbidity or dying from around pregnancy or delivery, which is mortality. Dr. Moji, the stigma surrounding mental illness seems to have decreased globally. It looks like it's becoming more normal to discuss mental illness openly. As for instance, we saw from people from your part of the world, Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah Winfrey in March 2021. Why is it no longer such a taboo to be able to discuss mental health issues from an individual's point of view? Well, Dr. Yade, I think we're getting to a point where we're realising that mental health issues is quite common. It's so common that it happens in one in two people. So it's something that should be there in our conversation with ease. And I must say that prior to 2021 interview, I mean, as far back as in 2019, there's been campaigns by the members of the royal family, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, that is Prince William and the wife. They had run several campaigns in 2019. There's a campaign of that Prince William ran, Men's Talk, because as I touched on earlier, men find it difficult to talk about emotional issues. And this campaign was aimed at generating conversation with men to talk about their mental health problems in a sort of almost normalizing it to be able to come out so that I can reduce the stigma of mental health. So he did place this within the football arena because if you want men, enough men to talk to, then go for football. So this was set within the football setting where footballers were also involved. For example, Ryan Giggs is a notable UK footballer who was able to talk about his mental health issues. Also, both the princes, Prince William and Prince Harry, they have talked openly about the death of their mother and the effect of the bereavement on them. And when you get people like that talking about their mental health issues, it does help other people to come out. You know, we've had Kate Price, who is a celebrity, singer, songwriter. She's talked about her experience of postnatal depression with her two children. So many more people are coming out to talk, to discuss about mental health problems. We do have the World Mental Health Day, which is the 10th of October. So these days of increasing awareness about mental health issues, about promoting discussions, conversations within the public domain of experiences of mental illness. There are TV soaps. Yeah, like day afternoon shows, soap operas. Yeah, exactly. TV dramas where the storyline would follow people with mental health issues, maybe postnatal depression, maybe psychosis. And after each program, there will be a helpline number that will be announced to 
people who've watched the program that if you've got any issues similar to what you've watched, feel free to call this helpline so that people can support you with, you know, whatever you want to talk about. So it's about gearing the conversation to make it comfortable, make it easy for people to talk about their mental illness and mental health difficulties. That does reduce stigma. All right. Dr. Moji, I am really enjoying this podcast with you. And I just want to talk to the fact that depression rates seem to be rising around the world. Is it because the treatment is becoming more available and people have more access to diagnoses? And can the rising depression rates be attributed to people actually receiving a diagnosis and getting treatment rather than they going undiagnosed in the past. And if you were to look at the city where you live in right now, Manchester, and the depression rates, how does it compare to, say, a place like Georgia in the United States, just out of my curiosity? Oh, well, comparing Manchester in the UK, which is the third largest city, which is a multicultural third largest city in the UK with a population of 500,000, to Georgia and the USA with a population of 10 million. You know, that's like comparing a goat probably to an elephant, really. So I'm not sure it's a fair comparison. I mean, the GDP in Manchester is 60, up to 62 billion pounds, whilst in USA, the Georgia, you know, my findings show that it's $563 billion. So that is way, way more. So really, the healthcare service systems in those two places are completely different. To answer your question, I'm not sure depression rate is on the rise. Depression rates are similar all over the world. But the one in two that I referred to is like mental health issues, mental health problems, which may not really hit the diagnostic criteria of a mental disorder. Because remember, people have mental health issues that may not necessarily be diagnosed as a mental disorder. It does not fulfill the criteria of the international classification of disease. We now we are an ICD-11. So that's why it's quite rife within the population, mental health issues. It used to be one in four, now here it's one in two. So it's almost like cancers, because cancers now is one in two in a lifetime for people to have cancer. So the psychosocial factors do contribute to access in diagnosis and in receiving treatment in these two geographical areas. In Manchester, in the UK, we do have the National Health Service. So everyone has access, free at the point of delivery, to free care, free assessment, whilst in the US, you know, I think there's a mixture of both the private and the public sector. There are private health delivery systems in the UK as well, but really it is much smaller than the National Health Service. Any job blogs can attend the National Health Service and be managed. So as a result of this, I will want to think that people in, in Manchester, they do have easier access. Having said that, it's also not accessible to all because Manchester is multicultural and there's some for cultural reasons that's even what is affecting their access to the mental health service for example some could be language issue although it shouldn't but we know that it's there 
We have Asians, we have Arabs, we have Polish ethnicities within Manchester, Chinese as well. And sometimes they're accessing, they're feeding into the National Health Service in spite of the efforts. Sometimes it's not as eased as it should be or could be. So that does affect their access to care. I hope that answers your question. It does, it does. So, Dr. Arule Fela, thank you so much for just all this insight you're giving us into these issues. But we cannot talk about mental health without talk about suicide. And what are the risk factors for depression? How can this lead to suicide? What are protective factors? How do we protect our mental well-being just in general? And even some of the social or biological factors that can add to additional stresses of everyday life. Can you speak to some of that for us, please? Oh, yes. Suicide risk factors are known to be things like the male gender and living alone, unemployment, pre-existing mental illness or substance misuse. Those are risk factors for suicide because if they're not managed well, then all those, they are recognized. Protective factors include things like having support, family support, receiving treatment for pre-existing mental illness, and also managing substance misuse, treating it by going into rehab that can be addressed, as well as addressing education, addressing housing needs, because some is within the, the rough housing units that sometimes the use of substances and alcohol, they arrive, as well as politically addressing policies that can generate employment in the population. These are the protective factors. Certainly preventing isolation by keeping in touch with people, that does help. Now, you know, the maternal mortality rate in the United States, especially in minority women, you know, several times higher than in the rest of the population. And then in Georgia, Georgia has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the whole United States, of all the states in the United States. I'm just curious, a big multicultural city like Manchester, have you even had a chance to look at the maternal mortality rate, especially amongst your minority population? The straight answer to that is no. But there was something, an interesting finding that came out into the public domain recently. Was it 2020? There were two women, they were set up a campaign and you can Google it, it's called Five Times More. A lady, Tinuke Awe, is the founder of the campaign group, The Five Times More, who came up with the fact that black women are five times more likely to die in pregnancy or childbirth than whites. That is a UK finding across the UK. So it's not specific to Manchester, but it's within the maternity service. That is the finding. Very surprising to everyone, you know, to find out that this is the case. Because indeed, there have been some studies subsequently that have taken place to suggest that there's been some improvement in mortality in Black and ethnic minority women within the maternity services. But... It's still not as documented or supported with enough research as these five times more that's happened. 
And we found out that such people, these were people who died during pregnancy or birth. And by the way, maternal mortality is a never event in the UK. That means it shouldn't happen for a woman to die in childbirth because the system will put all in place to manage and to support their well-being. And I'm aware of an anecdotal example of a friend who's told me that even at times when the mother maybe had to go in for cesarean section and if they feel that the for anesthetic reasons, they couldn't intubate her safely, they would wake her up and they would rather to sacrifice the baby rather than the mother to die in childbirth. So ideally it should be a never event. So for it to be five times more in black women, black and ethnic minority women and white women, the question is why? Why? And some of the reasons that's been put forward indeed is like mothers from black and ethnic minority women, they're more likely to have pre-existing chronic conditions, overweight, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and so on. Well, this doesn't fully explain the reason why the mortality is five times higher. And I mean, some postulations have been that these group of women, they've not really had access. Their conditions have not been stepped up to seniors sooner, quicker, in comparison to white counterparts. I mean, I was shocked when I heard that it's been banded around that maybe black women can withstand pain more than white women. And I'm thinking, well, that isn't right. But there's work going on to address this inequality in maternal mortality within the UK. So when you say their conditions haven't been sent to seniors, do you mean like senior consultants? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yes. They're not being stepped up on time. And, you know, sometimes some patients, some black and ethnic minority mothers feel fogged off when they make complaints about pain, about swelling in their legs, you know, rather than go through the guidelines, some instances. I mean, they just feel that they're not listened to to that point. And I think this has inevitably led to some mortality. But we don't have clear, exact figures or details or supports for this. These are just anecdotal people's stories. I mean, there was an example that a friend told me that the niece had to phone her up because she's an OBGYN gynecologist here in the UK. And the niece was being discharged from hospital. She was complaining of pain in her legs, swelling, and ideally they should do some investigations and go through the guidelines for that to do a Doppler and, you know, investigate it further. And she just felt that she was being fucked off. So the auntie had to advise her that this is what you could ask for. So when black and ethnic minority groups sometimes present, it seems like the attention is not there as it should be. And they're having to just have to suffer the consequence. And it's well known that white patients make a lot of noise, they complain a lot in comparison to the black and ethnic minority patients. Well, this is such an interesting finding because this is known in the United States, you know, from studies that minority women feel like they're not listened to compared to their white counterparts. And this has some direct relationship to how they do, like how sick they become or how well they become in pregnancy. So this is very interesting to hear that even in Manchester, United Kingdom, some of the things we are experiencing 
as a cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. That is one of some of the things we are experiencing as to why women die in and around pregnancy is also a factor in a place like Manchester United Kingdom. Yes, um, uh, Dr. Sagade, I recently heard of an interesting finding, research finding in the US that says that children thrive better, black children thrive better when they've been cared for by a black professional, for instance. That is true. That's an, an interesting dis- discovery. It's like, why is that happening? So there's questions to be answered about systemic biases that impact on the care provided for ethnic minority women or ethnic minority population in general. Yeah, so Dr. Moji Arulefela, thank you so much for just pointing all this maternal mortality, morbidity statistics. And even in the pandemic, this current pandemic, we hear that, you know, minority people have borne the brunt, both as frontline workers and as patients affected. They've borne the brunt of some of the negative effects of the pandemic. How can we use this opportunity of the pandemic to review and reframe what support women should expect for their mental health during the perinatal period? And how can we prepare, if possible, for any future crisis? Yes, indeed. You know, what's come up is that a lot of the members of staff, the NHS workers that have died, out of the first 200 of them, you know, a good proportion of them were Blacks, including doctors. The first two doctors who died in the pandemic, they were of Black and minority ethnic group. And this is partly because there's a lot of frontline workers who are of a BAME ethnicity. And, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, we had lack of supply of PPE. And, you know, it's also known that a lot of these staff were unable to refuse to go forward and treat persons within those vulnerable environments while other people would refuse. So that did happen. But thankfully, we now have almost surplus supply of PPE, and this is being addressed. And also, workers from the BAME group now have to have a risk assessment, individual risk assessment, to determine whether they can take up the posts where they're being assigned to. The second part of the question is about what can be done you know, to prepare to look at the effect of the pandemic on maternal mortality and what can be done to prevent such in future. There is the NHS long-term plan that's currently in place. And this is something that is happening as we speak with a plan to open up 26 maternal mental health hubs within the UK. The 26 are meant to be functional by April, 2022. And in the next few months, the first 10 of them are going to open up And they are meant to be centres where there will be provision of treatment and care for a range of mental health problems from pregnancy and childbirth, such as fear of giving birth, miscarriages, people having stillbirths or post-traumatic stress disorder. And these clinics will be available so that individuals right from pregnancy until to birth I think it's the first 1,001 days that they would have access to these new maternal mental health hubs. And these clinics also will provide training to maternity service staff so that they can offer 
women in their pregnancy and birth optimum care. So did you say they're going to provide care till 1,001 days for the pregnant women? The first 1,001 days. Wow. So that's almost like three years. There are similar services, similar timed limited services within the National Health Service. For instance, the early intervention service for patients with psychotic disorders, usually it's also for three years, limited period. They will literally have access to resources. And the idea in this is because research has shown that the duration on diagnosed psychosis can have a bearing for the prognosis of the individual. And it's usually like up to five to seven years was a finding that where a patient with psychotic symptoms is untreated before they come to the service. So they've had five to seven years of untreated psychosis. Dr. Moji, you mentioned 1,001 days relating to a pregnant woman and these mental health clinics that are going to be opening up in the United Kingdom and are going to be functional by 2022. Please, can you explain exactly what these clinics are and what they're meant to do? They are part of the National Health Service long-term plan. And they are specifically to manage women from pregnancy right through childbirth to pay attention to their mental health needs. So these are specifically for mental health needs in women who are pregnant or having children. There are going to be 26 of them all together. They'll have access to therapy as required, to support as required, to address conditions that are common in these women, such as bereavement due to stillbirths, miscarriages, or post-traumatic stress disorder, patients who have stillbirths, or even complications of childbirth. Whatever it is that could have caused trauma and impacted on their psychological well-being would be addressed within these specialized clinics. And also, these clinics will also include trainings for the staff, so that the staff are well trained up to be able to manage these psychological aspects of care for these women. So the quote of the 1001 days, I think, you know, in calculation comes to about, you say, three years. So it's going to cover that duration so they can have that care over that period of time before the public can then be discharged from the service, either back into the population at primary care level, or if they have other stepped up mental health needs that can then be transferred to secondary care service. This is akin to a similar service, though not for pregnant women, because this also lasts over a three-year period. It's called early intervention service. It's aimed at persons from age 18 to 65 who are having their first psychotic episodes. That means that is their first episodes of having severe mental illness, which is psychotic in nature, in which case they have lost touch with reality to the point that they're so unwell, they're having troubled minds to the point that their behavior, you know, does shows significant disturbance, even for the ordinary eye. So that these are people who have never been treated with medications or antipsychotics. And part of the driver for this service that was developed, I think, 
back in the early 2000s, because it's been, it's, the, the service has been running now for quite some time. It's another specialist team within the mental health service available within the National Health Service. So they have more resources. The idea is to minimize the duration of untreated psychosis, like schizophrenia, divisional disorder, that sort of, you know, severe mental illness. It's because research has found that the duration of untreated psychosis was averaging five to seven years when patients will be having symptoms, when they'll be having prodromal symptoms that people want, you know, they weren't even coming forward. People weren't picking up because they were not professionals. You know, families would just say, oh, this person just appears odd. He's doing things that's off his regular self. He's sitting alone for, you know, families would know that there's been a change in the family member. So they've been encouraged to come forward so that the services, the early intervention service can assess them so that if they need treatment, they can be treated earlier to reduce that duration of untreated psychosis. Because the sooner it's treated, the better the outcome in future for them. This has been such an interesting discussion. Dr. Moji Arulefela, we just want to thank you so much for contributing to our effort at education from a mental health perspective with a goal to having the conversation going and ultimately reducing all the issues that can adversely affect a woman in and around pregnancy. We thank you so much for taking the time from Manchester, United Kingdom, and we will definitely be having you back on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Sagade. I think, you know, what you're doing is admirable. It's amazing. And I can only just congratulate you for it, for the success and wish you that you make progress and go for to educate the, the world, improve awareness regarding mental health improvement and health as a whole in women. So well done. Thank you.